and Clifton Star Resources because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold. Today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He's available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, Call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for this second hour for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for this hour are Arrowway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. So I'm back here with Richard Duncan, really pleased to have him with me again uh, at this side of the break. Richard, when we left, we were sort of starting to talk about deflation, and you were talking about the huge number of people that are happy to work for meager wages, uh, certainly meager by Western standards, uh, and that these demographics were really pushing wages down. And I'd like to get into that a little later, but before we do that, I would like to go back to a comment you made about quantitative easing. QE1 and QE2, I wasn't quite sure if you believe that that's something that was a good policy or a bad policy. Could you, could you let, uh, how do you stand on QE1, QE2? And QE, as uh, Mark Faber suggests, QE24. <laughs> okay, well, let me just make certain that everyone understands I think it's terribly regrettable that we've that bad government policies for decades have brought us to this point where we are on government life support. But here we are. So now that we are here, teetering on the brink of a new Great Depression, we, what, what can we do? We can, uh, the government, well, what can we do? So what the government is doing is the government is 
is providing us life support so that we don't collapse into a new depression through trillion-dollar budget deficits, and these budget deficits need to be financed with QE in order to be affordable. It wouldn't have been possible for the government to have, well, over the last three years, the budget deficit has been $4 trillion, and it's going to be another trillion this year. But the 10-year bond yield is only 2%. How is that possible? It would not have been possible to have such massive budget deficits had the Fed not printed $2 trillion and used it to inject new money into the global economy, which much of which went into treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. So it has been necessary to prevent us from collapsing. But now, in terms of this deflation, inflation in question, mm -hmm. I think it's useful to think of the global economy as a big rubber raft. But instead of being inflated with air, our global economy, our raft, has been inflated with credit. Mm. And on top of the raft, you have stocks and bonds and commodities and gold and 7 billion people. The problem is the raft is now defective, and the credit is leaking out holes in numerous sides all around the raft as the credit gets destroyed. The reason the raft is defective is because so much credit has been blown into this raft, well, people just don't earn enough money in their real jobs to service the interest on the debt. Mm -hmm. The debt that exists can't be repaid. So the natural tendency of the raft is as the credit all leaks out and gets destroyed, it is to sink. In other words, it is mm -hmm. deflationary. Mm -hmm. And when it sinks, the stocks and the bonds and the commodities and the gold, they all go down together. Mm -hmm. And the 7 billion people start to go down. Now, the policymakers are absolutely terrified that this is going to be a replay of the 1930s and therefore the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And all they can do is to respond by pumping in new credit to replace the credit that's being destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing. That is the policy response to pump in more credit through budget deficits and, as necessary, through paper money creation, not only quantitative easing, but more recently and on an even bigger scale has, was LTRO in Europe. So this is the policy response. This is going to continue to be the policy response because – and when they pump in more credit, then the raft floats up again. And then you see stock prices go up, bond prices go up, gold prices go up, and everyone's happy again. The financial markets are happy we've had some inflation. And so that's what's happened and, – and so think. And so that's what's happened post-Lehman Brothers, as, uh, and things seem to be getting better again for a while. But you're saying that's not sustainable, obviously. Well, that's right. Things seem to be better for a little while, but don't forget these summer soft patches that we have year after year, mm -hmm. which are only ended by another round of quantitative easing, mm -hmm. pushes up the asset prices again. Mm -hmm. So it's very obvious that we're being sustained by government intervention and government injection of new credit and new fiat money. But while this can go on for a while, it can't go on indefinitely. Okay. So, Richard, that begs the question, then, in your book, uh, The New Depression, you offer a policy change, something you believe may have a chance to give us a way out of this mess or to grow our way out of this mess. And if I understand it properly, what you're suggesting we need to do is to start investing rather than consuming. You're suggesting that we consume less, and does that mean higher taxes? Does that mean uh, does that does that mean uh, you know less government programs, uh, and then or switching those programs from consumption to investment? What what are you proposing? Right, well, I think a lot of people now believe that we have no choice, but we must, uh, we must implement austerity, or mm -hmm. that we must have less government spending. Uh, but I think that they don't understand what that would mean. From my perspective, our global bubble has become so enormous, and we are so dependent on credit expansion for its, for its continuation, that if it begins to contract, the depression, it would not be a mild or even a severe or even a great recession. It would be a very severe great depression, and our civilization might not survive it. Just think about the 1930s and the 1940s. In Europe, during the 30s and 40s, Europe turned fascist and Germany took over Europe. Japan turned fascist and took over Asia, and the Great Depression didn't end. The GDP in the U.S. shrank 46%. Unemployment ranged between 15 and 25 percent for the decade, and it didn't end until World War II started. And when World War II started, U.S. government spending increased 
900%. And that ended the Depression, but World War II ended 60 million lives. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about cutting government spending, they'd better be prepared to hunt squirrels for a living because our economy would implode. So rather than allowing that to happen, the government really has three choices. And when I say the government, I mean we as a democratic society mm-hmm. have three choices. We can first immediately cut government spending now, in which case this nightmare scenario will unfold at once. Mm-hmm. That's option number one. Option number two is we can continue spending money through the government as we do now. Trillion-dollar budget deficits spent wastefully, largely, on too much consumption and, and unnecessary foreign wars in some cases. And this can continue to support the economy for another five to ten years, and then we collapse into the Great Depression nightmare scenario. Or, which is better than option number one, it's always better to die tomorrow than die today. <laughs> or option number three we can change the way the government spends money. And rather than wasting it all on unnecessary consumption, the government should invest money. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean invest it patching up the roads and fixing the bridges. Mm -hmm. I mean invest on a very aggressive scale in transformative 21st century technologies like solar energy, nanotechnology, genetic engineering, and biotechnology. Mm -hmm. For instance, if the government spent a trillion dollars over the next 10 years, on developing solar energy, then 10 years from now, we would have free, eternal, limitless energy. That would bring down the cost of energy to the private sector by 90% and unleash a wave of private sector innovation that would guarantee generations of future prosperity. Mm-hmm. And it's not a matter of whether we're going to spend the money or not spend the money. The government will spend the money until mm-hmm. we go bankrupt. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of are they going to waste it or are they going to invest it. If they invest it, Wisely and aggressively, we can transform our world, restructure the U.S. economy, dominate 21st century technologies, bring our budget back into balance, bring trade back into balance, and all live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would be an interesting uh, discussion with uh, with a person who knows the energy industry to uh, to talk about those possibilities. And, and we have had Nicole Foss on this show in the past, uh, who is who's very very knowledgeable about energy technologies, and this would be certainly a topic for for a future show. Uh, I like the ideas, Richard. My problem that I have as an Austrian thinker is that this notion of of malinvestment and that you have the bridge that leads to nowhere notion, that government can spend huge amounts of money, but if it isn't driven spontaneously by millions of decision makers in the economy, then isn't there a danger that um, that we spend a lot of money on something that doesn't work? Well, I think, yes, of course, that's a very real danger. We, but my response is, hey, we are going to spend that money mm-hmm. because our democracy will demand that we prevent the economy from sliding into depression. So mm-hmm. the money will be spent. But secondly, the idea that the government cannot do anything right mm-hmm. is, suggests that there's no faith faith in democracy. Mm-hmm. Either we as a democratic society can make the right decisions through our elected officials, or we don't deserve and we will not continue to have a democracy. Mm-hmm. And look at, look, at the, look at World War II. The government took over complete control of the economy, controlled prices, production, every aspect of the economy, and guess what? We won. Mm-hmm. This is a national emergency that's going to require a government-directed response if it's going to have a solution because Mm -hmm. the crisis is so great, just like World War II. Well, we certainly see, uh, it seems to me, a movement away from national sovereignty and a move towards uh, towards globalism. Is that what you think we need? I don't think globalization can survive if we continue to have this level of unemployment and underemployment in the United States for another five years. It was only 20 years ago that Ross Perot warned Americans that there would be a giant sucking sound leaving the country if they passed NAFTA and GATT. And now it wouldn't take much for another billionaire politician to come along and point out to the Americans that globalization is really not working out very well for them. And if the United States puts up trade tariffs, that's going to be bad for the U.S., it's going to be terrible for the world, and it's going to be catastrophic for China and most of the rest of Asia, countries depending on export-led growth. And the geopolitical consequences of that uh, would be extreme. 
Mm-hmm. You know, China's it, economy would implode. What would they do? You know, they would put up um, probably defensive measures as well, um, protective tariffs and like, right? Or what? What would they? Well, do? the, Mil- the U.S. The U.S. exports six times. The U.S. buys six times as many goods from China as China buys from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in other words, China has no defense. Mm-hmm. China would be slaughtered in a trade war. Right. And their economy would implode. Mm-hmm. There'd be mass unemployment. And what would the Communist Party do? How would they feed the people? It's not at all certain. Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't be so friendly as they have been in recent years as we've allowed their trade surplus to grow from nothing in 1990 to 300 billion dollars last year. Mhm. In a way, Richard, isn't uh are, don't we have sort of um, a beggar thy neighbor response in the currency wars right now? It seems to me that nations are really trying to debase their currency to gain trade advantages on one another. Is that a fair statement? Well, this is not anything new. The you can see the if you look at total foreign exchange reserves or any country's foreign exchange reserves that tells you how much they're manipulating their currency mm-hmm. because countries obtain foreign exchange reserves really in just one way their central bank prints their own money from thin air and buys primarily dollars entering their economy as a result of that country's trade surplus with the US so in total now total foreign exchange reserves are above 10 trillion dollars they have more than doubled just in the last four years. So this represents unprecedented uh, intervention and manipulation of currencies, but it also represents unprecedented paper money creation Mm. by the central banks such as China's central bank and Russia's and India's and Brazil's and many other countries around the world who are accumulating currencies in this way because it prevents their currency, in that way they stop their currency from appreciating. Mm-hmm. Now, you notice the U.S. never declares China a currency manipulator. Right. <laughs> Why is that? Well, yeah. in part, it's because when China accumulates these dollars, they must buy treasury bonds. Right. And that helps the U.S. government finance its massive budget deficits mm-hmm. and global foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Well, there are those that believe that China is using their dollars now to buy assets around the world, to buy you know mining projects, energy um, projects, and so forth and that they are dishoarding or divesting themselves of dollars. Do you buy that argument? Yes, I, I think they, they, that is true, and that's what they should be doing. But mm-hmm. still, they're still accumulating enormous amounts of dollars nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Of course, that would be the sensible thing to do, given how the global economy is unfolding. Sure. But it's one thing to buy mines in Africa and South America. It's mm-hmm. another thing to have the military power to make sure that those minerals actually make it back to China. <laughs> which which also leads to another question with respect to the United States. And certainly the United States has a military second to none. Uh, it is, uh, in as, as Ron Paul likes to remind us, in 140 different countries or so. Uh, is that a big part of the perpetuation of the dollar, the United States military, in your view? In, in If anything, is one reason for the dollar weakness mm-hmm. in that it's, as Paul Kennedy wrote about a couple, 20 years ago now, it's imperial overstretch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would, American global dominance might be one of the first thing America has to abandon if mm-hmm. we collapse into a new Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Because if we have protectionism and trade between Asia and the United States collapses, for instance, what's the point of maintaining army bases in Asia if mm-hmm. we have no ad- no advantage from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, this would, it would be, are we going to keep spending abroad to keep open trade, trade lines that have no trade? Or are we going to spend money on the 25% of the public who's unemployed and has no source of income at home? Mm-hmm. Those would be the sort of choices we face if we allow our new economic citizens system which is driven by credit to implode mm-hmm. yeah yeah if the system implodes if, if credit stops expanding then we're in big trouble that's that seems obvious but i would like to ask you uh, richard to explain to our listeners your quantity theory of credit uh, and could you just tell us what that is yes there there is a theory called the quantity theory of money that they say is the oldest surviving economic theory 
it dates back to the 1500s, the quantity theory of money. Mm-hmm. It's probably expi- explained most eloquently by the American economist Irving Fisher mm-hmm. in his 1912 book called The Purchasing Power of Money. And this concept, the quantity theory of money, is really what monetary policy is built around. And it's when Milton Friedman said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena, mm-hmm. he was relying on this theory for his beliefs. And it's not very complicated. Essentially, the theory states that if you increase the quantity of money in a country for whatever reason, you discover a new gold mine or you print a lot of paper money, you get a this temporarily creates a, a economic boom because more money is circulating, so the volume of trade picks up. But the boom doesn't last very long because after a little while, prices pick up and you have inflation. And the inflation then deters the increased trade and you're really back where you started. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you have a higher nominal GDP, but you don't have any higher real GDP. You just have a higher price level or more inflation. Now, this, I think, is, gen- this is basically correct. And mm-hmm. depending on how you define the variables involved, it's, all, it's really an identity. But the thing that's changed is that in 1968, when we broke the link between dollars and gold, the nature of money changed. Before, if you took a dollar to the Treasury Department, in theory at least, they were meant to give you some gold for it. Mm-hmm. Now they just give you another dollar. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between a dollar bill today and a 10-year Treasury bond? They're essentially both credit instruments, mm-hmm. except the dollar bill just doesn't pay any interest. Mm-hmm. So when the nature of money changed, this allowed this explosion of credit that we've been discussing this expansion of credit from $1 trillion to $50 trillion has changed our world. So what I'd like to add to the quantity theory of money is that it's, no really, it's not pertinent anymore. Money has become irrelevant. It's been made irrelevant by the explosion of credit. So to make this centuries-old theory pertinent, once again, we need to adapt it a bit. And instead of looking at the quantity of money, just look at the quantity of credit instead. And as, again, credit has exploded from $1 trillion to $50 trillion. Now, the main difference between the quantity theory of credit and the quantity theory of money is that there was, under money, you could only expand the money supply for a short while before you ran out of more money. Mm-hmm. But under credit, there appeared to be no limit as to how long we could keep growing credit, up until 2008, anyway. And then we found out where the limit was. And now, the danger is, is that after a four-and-a-half-decade boom, we're not going to have just a transitory boom-and-bust period as we would have had under a gold standard. The danger is that we will collapse into a multi-decade depression, mm-hmm. hence the name of my new book, The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money Economy. Mm-hmm. So this, we have a new economic system, and we can all see the flaws with it now. We mm-hmm. can all see all the flaws with creditism, but we are overlooking the opportunities that exist within the system. Mm-hmm. The opportunity is the U.S. government can borrow massive amounts of money at 2% interest. If they borrow at 2% and invest aggressively on a, in transformative technologies, they can restructure our economy, and we don't have to collapse into a multi-decade depression. Mm-hmm. We can actually create technological miracles that ensure undreamt of prosperity for the future. Well, that certainly is uh, a bit of optimism, and, and Lord knows we can use it on this show. We have uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people that don't see the world uh, or don't see the, optimi- the optimistic uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, and I would certainly like to believe uh, that what you're saying is true. I hope you're right about this, but I guess hoping we're right is one thing, and seeing government actually do something along these lines is something else. Are there any? politicians out there that you know of that are that sort of understand what you're saying and, and buy into it are there some people that that would be inclined to try to implement your theory and your your belief that there might be a way to grow our way out of this horrendous uh, debt problem we're in it seems to me from a, a distance I, I live in thailand but it seems to me that the the american mind has been captured by such toxic propaganda from television network news, which preaches 24-7 that government is evil, even though as a democracy, we are the government. We're taught that government is evil and can do no good. So the politicians have been 
have been intimidated into thinking anywhere beyond that as a political message. But in practice, of course, they do keep extending the tax cuts, and they do keep ensuring that we have these big budget deficits. Because Congress, regardless of what they say, they have to get reelected every two years. If they actually implement austerity, unemployment is going to move to 12% very quickly, and they'll all lose their jobs every two years. So they're not going to do that. But they have to talk the talk. And even President Obama, I mean, he, he has the right idea. He told us that this is our Sputnik moment. Mm-hmm. But he didn't offer NASA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NASA part is what's missing. Mm-hmm. NASA is our solution, is our salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is, uh, you know, technology, the ingenuity, American ingenuity came, I think, is, is shining through to an extent. Uh, and I don't know your views on the shale, oil, and gas, but one a very astute investor, uh, Rick Rule, who's been on this show, and Doug Casey, two guys that have not been terribly uh, optimistic about American uh, the American economy have now started suggesting investing in, in, in the U.S. markets to an extent, in large part because of the shale, oil, and gas and the, uh, the technology that is now allowing us to, uh, to capture those vast resources that heretofore were not available. And they've turned fairly bullish on the U.S. economy um, because of that to an extent. It is lowering Gas prices are very low, meaning manufacturing and, and energy costs and uh, electricity and so forth have been held down. And uh, a new steel mill was started up in a little hometown that I was brought up in, Canton, Ohio, recently just to uh, manufacture the pipes that are used. But I think what you're looking at is something more visionary, something bigger than than this, even though this may be significant to uh, the U.S. economy in the short run, or perhaps even the global economy, if we can get cheaper sources of clean burning energy. Any thoughts? Well, yes, the development of shell gas does seem to be encouraging, assuming that fracking doesn't poison the water supply along the way. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help to have a dollar a gallon gasoline if you have four dollar a gallon water. <laughs> uh, but assuming that that's not going to be the case, then yes, it helps, but it's, it's not enough. It's too small, it's too little, too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be more meaningful if we could convert all the cars to electric cars, develop new battery technologies to make the cars drive faster, mm-hmm. and then convert the gas into electricity and power the electric cars. Mm-hmm. Then that would end our dependence on Middle East oil, and we could get out of the Middle East and reduce our military spending there. All of those things would have a very powerful impact on the U.S. economy, but that doesn't seem that that is going to occur. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to. We're running out of time again, Richard. I want to thank you so much for being on. But before we let you go, I want to ask you. Um, let's say that. Let's let's hope that you're right about this this third alternative, the most optimistic uh, way out of this mess. Uh, then do you see us sort of growing gradually out of this? I mean, this would be something that would take still a long time to to overcome the problem that we've gotten ourselves into, would it not? It will take a long time, but assuming that we change the way the government spends, I believe the government is going to keep spending. It's just a matter of will it waste all the money or will it actually invest it? So as they keep spending, it will support the economy as they're doing now, but the way they spend would actually solve the crisis by creating new industries and new technologies that would solve the crisis. Mm-hmm. But in the shorter term, I mean, from an investment perspective, mm-hmm. and just keep an eye on the global raft. It's, mm-hmm. it's inflated with credit. Its natural mm-hmm. tendency is to sink. So the policy response will, will continue to be to pump more credit in. Mm-hmm. So bet on bailouts. Bet on more quantitative easing. When Chairman Bernanke goes on CNBC and tells us there's going to be QE3, that's the time to be long risk assets. Mm-hmm. And then when he mm-hmm. tells us that QE3 is going to stop, expect the raft to start sinking again. Take mm-hmm. your profits and wait for a while for QE4 because the raft's going to go down. Mm-hmm. So just so, play the policy response and bet on bailouts. When the Fed, when they, they will inject more credit, when they do, all the asset prices will go up together. And then when they stop, they will all sink together. Risk on, risk off, I guess, is, uh, is to sum it up, kind of the way we need to invest. I'm afraid so. Yeah, it's a, it's a new paradigm for sure. Richard, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Your insights are, are fantastic. Um, your book is fantastic, The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money Economy. Highly recommended to our listeners. And the website again, Richard, where they can go to follow up with your work? RichardDuncanEconomics.com. 
richardduncaneconomics.com. Thank you so much, Richard. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. I really thank you for coming on our show. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with some more thoughts on today's economy. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, I uh, want to uh, mention our sponsors uh, that that make this show economically viable. Uh, they are American Manganese, Arroway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Well, uh, I'm pleased to have with me Roger Wiegand, uh, one of two partners of mine, and Roger provides an excellent newsletter geared towards uh, commodity and currency trading, uh, futures markets, other uh, ways to make money, too, that Roger finds from time to time. Uh, his weekly newsletter is really chock full of very interesting articles and trading advice and a lot of interesting, provocative uh, pictures, things in there that are a lot of fun to just to look at and enjoy. Um, I do value his technical skills, and I, because of that, I include some of his commentary in my own newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, primarily a section that he calls After the Bell. Uh, after the bell is really a, a, a technical look for the most part, technical at some of the major, well, I would say most of the major markets. Uh, and I'm going to uh, want to ask Roger now if he would comment on some of those major markets that he talks about each and every week and which you can avail yourself to by subscribing to Roger's newsletter or to my newsletter. Welcome, Roger. Good to have you back. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. We uh, had an enjoyable time down at the Wealth Protection Conference, didn't we? And it was uh, 
really a good a good uh, a good show always a fun time i find it one of the most enjoyable shows that i go to and uh as i was announcing earlier today we uh people can uh avail themselves to uh, all of the speeches that were made there roger myself uh ian McAvity, um arch crawford uh, jim lyles a host of uh, very interesting speakers um and you can um I'm I'm just searching now for the uh, for the telephone number but I'll I'll come up with that before the show is over and I did mention it at the first of the show but let's get into it Roger I'd like you to talk about some of the major markets that we are most concerned about here uh let's talk about the gold market how does that look at uh, from a technical point of view to you right now uh what we're seeing today Jay is we're seeing a the good, the June gold futures are are stuck stop and go on a magnet number of $1665 uh, they opened today and the June futures at 1666 and we're off just a tiny bit. The last price 1662, uh, and some change. Silver something similar. Silver is $30.99 and a half cents, call it 31 even. And silver went off a little bit, just about 21 cents today. But generally what we're seeing is holding patterns. Uh, gold and silver do not want to buy, but they sure don't want to sell either. It's kind of an extended channeled sideways pattern, and the June gold futures on my most active chart right now, this is running real time, it's got a huge parabolic bottom or a shape like a bowl, and uh, when you see those typically, that's a big setup uh, before there, there's a, a, a bull rally. So right now, um, we're right up against that 1665 on the close today on a small daily bar, so that means it's poised to go either way, really, uh, either up, down, or sideways. So it's going to be interesting to watch it. Uh, we're overdue for a rally in precious metals, but a lot of European news, Jay, has been difficult. And some of the other reports that we got last week and this week in the media uh, have caused many of the traders just to sit still. Uh, we saw a report from a top bit, uh, trader today, uh, he called his little daily report the snooze button because everything was going sideways and just sitting still. Uh, the E-minis today, which are the S&Ps, electronic, those are at 1401. Uh, they're up probably very little, maybe two or three points for the day, so that's uh, resistance, 1400. Uh, the grains were up lately, and right now they're flat. They're at 1500 for, uh, or $15 for beans. And the corn was down to six, and now it's back up to nearly six thirty. The big mover mm-hmm. to watch, I think, Jay, with uh, gold and silver, is to watch the oil. Mm-hmm. Oil is half of the uh, CRB, uh, and the CRB contains a basket of commodities. And the big traders, the hedge funds, just buy the whole the whole bunch. And when they do, it, of course, it drives up oil and gold and everything with it. So it, oil did a breakout today. It was up. Um, Opened at at one hundred and four dollars and eighty nine cents. Now we're at almost one hundred six. We're at one hundred five ninety eight, up one point one percent. That's the June futures contract. So what we're seeing is we're seeing more pressure on uh, commodities to the upside, but they have a little ways to go yet before they will in fact break out. But I was very happy to see oil get past that number. Uh, below 104 and a half. So now we're trading oil 104 and a half to 108 and a half, and that's going to be the next resistance up about another 250. So all in all, it looks like finally uh, some of the things that are favorites and that we recommend uh, should get busy and get going. The other thing that's attractive, Jay, is the fact that the U.S. dollar has been in the green today. Uh, along with the commodities, typically mm. they go opposite each other. Right. But uh, with the dollar up uh, today and the commodities up too, that's a, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, that's uh, that that um, suggests a real bullish trend. I would guess that if uh, if the commodities can go up at the same time, the dollar is up. So you, you seem to be uh, suggesting, Roger, that the oil, the demand for oil, a lot of that is coming from hedge funds, speculation essentially, uh, and not necessarily, I guess, uh, global demand. I would say that's true. I saw an oil report from the Middle East, one of their top analysts, on Bloomberg the other night, and he was saying that uh, there's more than adequate supply of oil, but the uh, demand and the uh, production 
is kind of getting back together instead of an overproduction situation. And the other key thing that we did see, which I think is of quite interest, uh, strong interest, I should say, to many people, is that it finally appears natural gas has gotten off the bottom. As you know, gas has been in a tremendous oversupply. It was stuck down at uh, $2 even, 2.00, and now gas is up for June and futures at 2.36 and a half. Uh, I mentioned in the newsletter this week in Trader Tracks that traders should keep an eye on natural gas and natural gas producers, the stocks, because we think that the next big move could take it from two all the way up to four, which is about a 100% move. That'd be a good one. Mm-hmm. Now, ordinarily, gas is not that quick, but a couple of fundamentals to consider. Number one, there's a big air conditioning use in the summertime coming up. That drives the power plants that burn gas. Uh, the next thing is, of course, inflation uh, for the second half of this year. And then further on down the trail, September, October, we start the fall heating season. So I would think that between now and September and maybe sooner, gas is going to go back from a low at two up to uh, a double at four. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I saw um, during the week that gas had actually, natural gas had actually gone below $2 for a little bit. But it's uh, the demand, the long-term demand can be, certainly can be increased as uh, liquid natural gas um, uh, facilities are are, um, are put in place and Certainly that's going to happen, I think, at least as long as there's a disparity between the price of nat gas in Beijing, which was something like $15 at a time when it was selling at two here. It would seem to be some real big profit opportunities longer term, and, of course, nat gas being a cleaner uh, burning fuel than many of the other uh, things that we burn these days as well, coal for sure and, and oil. Uh, well, okay. So, what do you see, Roger, for the long bond market? You know, this seems to me one of the one of the markets not most people don't pay too much attention to, but probably the most important market, uh, as important as the dollar. What do you? What is? What are your? When do you think that bull market in the long bond uh, will come to an end? Well, the long bond <clears throat> in the U.S. right now is at one forty two, and it's been surprising to everybody, but. Uh, um, what a lot of the analysts have been saying is it's not very pretty as far as the credit market in general is concerned, but Europe has just been worse. So it appears that the American paper is better than the European paper, and Europe has been selling off, and the U.S. has been firm, either that or rising. As to when it's going to shift, uh, my best guess on that one, Jay, would probably be this fall. Uh, we're still saying that between June of this year, which is not far away, next month, and also through the first quarter of 2013, uh, we're expecting a great deal of volatility in the markets. We've got the American election. Uh, Spain and Italy are on, on pins and needles right now as far as credit's concerned. Uh, they just finished some big uh, credit meetings in Washington, D.C. with the IMF and the G20 with the idea that they were going to make do some planning to try to solve this, these uh, upsets in Europe right now. I don't know what they can do other than just continue to print more bonds and currency. That's the only thing I can see they can do. Yeah. Well, that's all they know to do. Basically, that's all they know to do. But speaking of the elections, uh, which is more bullish for the stock market, um, Obama or Romney? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I uh, Some of the people are saying, of course, that they've got their favorite. They think Obama is the one. But keep in mind there's one other factor that we hasn't been paid much attention to, and that is uh, we don't have a budget, haven't had one for three years. And the big thing that's looming is the expiration of the Bush tax cuts at the end of the year. Most of the men in Congress want to say that they would prefer that the tax cuts remain in place to try to save the economy. However, the Democrats are saying they don't want that. They want to uh, reconfigure everything. I don't think there's enough time between now and the end of the year to do much of any consequence simply because of all the electioneering that's going on. But I would say this, and, and some of the, the top uh, people running funds and, and uh, analysts and so on, they're saying that those if the Bush tax cuts expire at the end of the year and they're not renewed, next year is going to be one rough cookie for sure. Well, that certainly would seem to be the case. In fact, the New York Times ran an article recently talking about how, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it seems to me something like a family making $50,000 a year, which 
is not a lot of money if you live in the New York City area, uh, would see their taxes go up something like fifteen or seventeen hundred dollars, which is a quite a quite a chunk out of disposable income for such a a salary of that modest means. But uh, I, I, it was hard for me to see how, uh, and especially if there's um, a reduction uh, or if there's an increase in the capital gains tax, how that wouldn't be horribly bearish for the equity market. And certainly, seems to me that the equity market is a big driver in terms of consumer confidence too. So. If, we take the equity market down in a big way. Um, of course, after the elections are over, um, you know, some people are worried Mr. Obama's uh, ideology may uh, may rule supreme if he doesn't have to worry about being elected anyway. He can just go ahead and do whatever uh, he he believes is the right thing to do. So I guess, uh, but, but certainly the elections, uh, I would think, could cause more, uh, could lead to more volatility. On the other side of it, of course, Roger, is that uh, election years are known to be, Years when the Fed is uh, even more uh, more permissive than it normally is, although it's hard to see how that could be the case in recent years. The Fed creating trillions of dollars out of thin air. Did uh, so the equity markets in general? You know, you listen to some of the talks at the uh, at the Wealth Protection Conference. Uh, Archie Crawford, uh, Ian McAvity, two two guys who are pretty uh, pretty uh, worried about the equity markets. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Dow, the S&P, the, the big major equity markets? They've been running along at uh, at a peak and, and kind of levitating, and the patterns in the charts have the appearance of artificial support, at least they do to me. Some of them have a double top, and a couple of them are headed for a triple top. And usually when they do that, um, it, some of the, particularly the stock indexes, we see that... Uh, they are getting some kind of artificial support. Also, high-grade copper went down to 360. It's back to 383.40 right now, mm-hmm. or 384. And copper rising is a pretty good sign that the bond market's going to go down and that we've got inflation ahead and that commodities are going to go higher. Uh, the, the May contract now we're looking at for copper is getting to uh, – uh, it's got a couple of weeks to go yet here before some changes on options and expirations, but as as you remember, uh, last couple of weeks, copper did drop off a lot. It was down a quarter, and we're right back where we were. We're back at uh, three dollars and eighty four cents. So well, that's what the, was that's the high indicator. for copper over the last few years, Roger? Pardon me. What was the high for copper over the last few years? I mean, well, it was over it four dollars. High of four dollars and forty cents. Mm-hmm. And I think that was about eighteen months ago, roughly. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. I can't remember the exact mm-hmm. date, but. Uh, it, it stuck near that number for so long, I knew that that was pretty much the top. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Copper, as it's called, for a reason, it does. Uh, it is such an important uh, part of uh, growth, especially in the developing economies. So much copper has to go into uh, making our lives more more uh, livable, I guess you could say, in the Western world anyway. anyway the conference, the uh, conveniences that we've become so accustomed to, uh, and the demand for copper has come from places like China and uh, developing parts of the world. So we we do watch copper. My over overriding concern is this enormous amount of debt that keeps uh, keeps a lid on inflation, really, and and threatens to turn the system downward into a deflationary implosion. And there's always that the the more debt you have, the more leveraged you become, the more uh, risky uh, one one extreme or the other. I think, and that's. That's my big concern. I still, I still remain very cautious about this equity market. Roger, as far as this year goes, though, I guess you are too. But, but would, at the end of the year, would you suggest that the stocks will be higher than they are now or lower than they are now? I think in September, October, Jay, we're, we're due for correction. How severe it could be, you know, it's difficult to say. Some are saying, well, based upon where we are now, uh, it might only go back from, um, where we sit today to uh, 11,000, maybe 10,004, a full 50% retracement, if it really got ugly, would take the uh, the Dow down to 7,200, 7,500. Mm-hmm. I believe back in 08 we did visit those numbers. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to do it again. And, cons- and considering it is an election year, chances of it going that far down are probably not realistic. I would say somewhere in the middle would be more likely like 10.4 or perhaps 11.250, which are two numbers that come to mind technically. Mm-hmm. But uh, and nevertheless, uh, between uh, right now, uh, I would say next month and the end of the year, we're looking for 
first a mild correction in June, or perhaps the end of May, a choppy summer, and then great difficulty in September, October. And then normally the big fund managers on November 1st after the, the September, October sell, they come back in and they're buyers. Okay. Uh, whether they're going to buy just in front of an election, that's another question. Maybe they'll yeah. wait a week or so. Well, then there's always the question of uh, whether things get away from the policymakers, too, Roger. You know, they can have uh, plans to continue to pump money into the system, but the problem that I have is that that money is not real money. It is debt money. And the more they print, or they don't really print, as uh, a Gary Schilling said on this show, we don't print money these days. We put it into the banking system, and then we try to lend it out. But it, the problem is, of course, the debt Every time you create a dollar, you create more debt, and debt is growing much more rapidly than income. So I think uh, there is a, an overwhelming deflationary potential, and it could go either way. Uh, so it's it's a it's it's a scary time. It's not an easy time to try to figure uh, how to invest and how to plan your lives. That's for sure. So well, anyway, Roger, thanks for passing on your ideas, your views on the market, and uh, folks. Again, you can take advantage of Roger's weekly advice his weekly weekly technical analysis and a lot, and a lot more by subscribing to Trader Tracks you can call uh Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426 718-457-1426 to sign up for Roger's letter, Chan's letter and my letter. Well, we do have to go to the closing comments of this uh week and I'm going to um, take we're going to take a commercial break and I'll be right back uh, to tell you who's coming next week on our show. Don't go away, I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Do you own your own business? Are you having some struggles from time to time? As a business owner, you appreciate the joy and excitement that comes with the start of your own business. But over time, this joy can become a major headache. Overhead costs, compliance and legal issues, hiring, training, and sometimes firing employees, and a whole set of new tax rules for you. Take time out for small business. We'll help you restore the joy of owning your own small business and help you take back some of the sanity. Join host Joan Shoemaker and her guests Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I just wanted to make some comments about today's show and then uh, let you know who our guest next week is. Before I do any of that, though, let me uh, remind you again that you can take advantage of the Wealth Protection uh, Offer, the Wealth Protection Conference Offer, I should say. Uh, there were a number of very, very interesting speakers at the show uh, last weekend, uh, those of you who were not able to make it. Uh, and even those of you who did make it uh, might want to uh, contact uh, the Wealth Protection folks and order that CD that allows you to hear 
all of the talks that were presented there, including mine and Rogers and uh, other people like Arch Crawford, Ian McAvity. Uh, we had Jim Lyles, who's been on the show, Janice Dorn, Don Watkins, and uh, Bill Tatro. Uh, some very interesting speakers, Sinclair No being another person that's uh, a lot of very interesting and I think very valuable information that was presented there. You can have that by calling 480. Uh, actually, the 800 number uh, is 494-4149, 800-494-4149, or call the uh, locally in Arizona, 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877. Five eight seven seven, and the charge is uh, the charge for the CD is one hundred and twenty nine dollars, I believe. Anyway, uh, with respect to the issues that we talked about today with Richard Duncan, uh, of course, as a person who believes very very strongly in free markets, I am uh, a bit hesitant to uh, endorse uh, Richard's ideas that uh, that that governments. Uh, that there is good government expenditures and bad government expenditures. I, I think we have to be very careful. I can understand what he's saying. He would like to increase. He says government's going to spend money anyway. They're going to spend money to stimulate the economy since we are in such dire shape. Uh, take that as a given. And he thinks that's better that governments spend money, even if they spend it badly, than if they don't spend it at all. Well, I would take some issue with that. I'm not sure that I agree with that premise to start with. Uh, I do probably agree that government spending money for research and development is uh, preferable to government spending money for, um, you know, for, for immediate consumption. And I and I even would like to believe that there could be some some great uh, technological breakthroughs that government uh, might be able to help uh, stimulate. And certainly, uh, government programs like outer space had. Our space program had some benefits that uh, that uh, you know to society as a whole. Uh, so it's certainly you could make the case perhaps that we're better off spending some money for that kind of uh, activity if government's going to spend anyway. Um, however, I I have some difficulties with that as a as an Austrian uh, advocate, Austrian school advocate. I think we might uh, do better to bite the bullet. The problem, Richard, is very uh, right in saying that it would be very severe, that we would have a very, very significant depression. Uh, my thinking, though, is that that probably would not last very long. Uh, it would be very severe for sure, but then we could uh, wipe the debt off the books and we could actually start the new Kondratiev cycle in a growth period that could last many, many years. Of course, getting past the political uh, turmoil that would require that would result now that we have a, a society that believes it's in, uh, entitled to all kinds of goodies without working for it. Um, well, and they've been promised that. And I think that's the challenge that we're facing going forward. In one way or another, we're going to have to learn to do with less. Uh, whether uh, we take Richard's uh, remedy or whether we bite the bullet, uh, times are going to get more difficult. I'm uh, continually uh, continuing to remain very optimistic on gold mining companies as a whole. There is uh, a, a lot of companies, some of the sponsors on this show, that I really uh, prefer, uh, certainly Eurasian Minerals, uh, Gold Rich Mining Company, Prodigy Gold, are three that are in my newsletter I like very much. Clifton Star Resources is a company I'm watching. Uh, I believe, uh, actually I've added it back to my newsletter with the new management. Uh, I think that has tremendous upside potential. American Manganese, uh, on the magnesium, uh, manganese side, I think, uh, has tremendous upside potential, especially if the metallurgy proves to work out as they hope. Another company that just came to my attention, a real penny stock called Bravada Gold Corp, uh, just came out with a preliminary economic assessment suggesting that the uh, project that they have uh, in Nevada, which is a former gold mine, makes this company worth seven or eight times its current share price of six cents. Uh, it's got a market cap of $6 million, and it's a uh, $43 million uh, 5% discounted net present value on its project. So this is one I think might be worth taking a real look at. Uh, lots more to talk about. The gold mining sector remains very strong. That is the industry itself. The shares have not done well. There are those uh, people that think the shares could be ready for a turnaround. I'm not so sure if we get a major decline in the equity markets. My thinking still is that the, equi the gold shares come down with everything else. should mention that next week, uh, Paul Van Eden is my special guest. Paul is suggesting that the fair price for gold is only around $900. We're going to 
challenge Paul on that and find out what his thinking is. That's all the time we have. I just uh, want to thank my ex- senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Justin Jackman, and my engineer for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.